The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Hear God's word. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Beloved in Christ, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, that same spirit that gave understanding to the people gathered there at the water gate, inside the wall, as they um, heard your word, we need that same spirit here with us now. Would he come, descend on this place? Jesus, you have the very words of life. And so we um, now quiet our hearts and pray that your spirit would open our minds and ears so that that word might speak forth clearly. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Be seated, please. There are a lot of different ways to tell the story of the Protestant Reformation. A favorite way of telling the story centers on sort of a heroic tale of a lone monk named Martin Luther. An Augustinian monk, newly convicted of his discovery of Paul's gospel and furiously hammering away 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The Reformation is thus launched by a kind of medieval blog post about justification by faith that becomes a catalyst for a, a theological action adventure, narrative story filled with public battles, backdoor intrigue, wily villains, and our lone brave heart hero declaring, here now I stand. But it's interesting. Because not only was their reformation happening there in Germany, but in Geneva, Switzerland, in France, and eventually in the British Isles. A different angle on the story of the Reformation sees the Reformation not just as a narrowly defined theological debate about how someone is saved, but more broadly as a Christian reform movement concerned with the shape of all of life. 
with how we understand our life before the face of God. You see, the true scandal of the Reformation was not a reshaping of how we understood salvation, though it was no less than that. But instead, how we view everything. A special note to the Reformers was something that was not new to Scripture at all, and that was God is concerned about how His people live once they are His people. You see, this is what this passage in Nehemiah strikes at. There was a reform movement happening as the people of God were gathered there at the water gate. Reformation didn't just happen once in 1517. And in fact, if we read the narrative of Scripture, Reformation should still, in fact, be shaping how we view our lives, how we check and recheck ourselves against the Word of God to see whether we've fallen once again into traps and snares that would cause us to try and tame and manage the gospel. So there's two things I just want to think about from this text this morning. And they're printed in your outline in your bulletin. The first one is the danger of do. And the second one is the delight of done. The danger of do, the delight of done. Now, this passage opens up after the wall had been rebuilt. The people of God had gathered once more, and they were gathered inside the wall somewhere near the water gate of the city. And as they were gathered there, they were hearing the law of God read. Now, this could have been just Deuteronomy. Some scholars think that it was actually all five books of the Pentateuch. This would be um, the first five books of the Old Testament. Whatever was being read, for many of them, it was the first time they were hearing it. It was the first time because while they were in wilderness, while they were in Babylon, while they were in exile, they had fallen away. They were no longer paying attention to what the law of God said, what God expected of them as his covenant people. And so as they're gathered, this was not a perfunctory reading. This was, uh, this was a reading where all of the people, the chief priests, the Levites, the scribes, were all there to help the people along. And so it wasn't just the sort of talking lecture, you know, with everybody falling asleep out in the room. What it was was actually the, the trained ones, the people of God who understood the law, going out and in and among the people to try and see if, in fact, they understood what was being said, not just heard, but understood. What happened, though? They were crushed. They did understand. They understood exactly what it said, and they were crushed. You see, one of, uh, there are a lot of quotes that are ascribed to Luther. I don't know if this one is his or if this is one of those kind of like, you know, quotes that are ascribed to Einstein or Franklin that, you know, somebody made it up and they just sort of tack someone's name on. But nevertheless, I heard this quote ascribed to Luther, and that is this. The law can, can diagnose the illness, but the law cannot prescribe 
the cure. The law can diagnose the illness, but the law cannot prescribe the cure. So I want to spend a few moments here as we think about this danger of do, this danger of this sort of white-knuckle effort that says, now as God's people, we must keep the law perfectly. As a recovering Pharisee, I can tell you that's exhausting. It's exhausting. Dr. Richard Pratt who was uh, previously a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary and is now sort of full-fledged in his work of bringing theological education to the world for free, wrote an article about 13 years ago where he outlined some of these dangers of legalism. Now, you've heard us say this word before, but I want to explore some of the nuances of legalism because it really strikes at the heart of why the people of God in verses Uh, in verses 8 and 9 of this passage, would have been so terrified, would have been so crushed. So these categories are are Richard's, and I'm not going to pretend like I made them up on my own. I'm not that smart. Um, In fact, most of the things that I say, I probably heard someone else say them first. Um, But nevertheless, uh, Pratt had three ways to talk about the different chains of legalism. I want to give you these three things, and we'll talk about each one. He said, legalism, the law, puts chains around our necks, puts chains around our shoulders, and wraps chains around our feet. So the law, legalism, puts chains around our necks, chains around our shoulders, chains around our feet. What do we mean by that? The first set of chains... Really, if we're living the Christian life, these chains aren't hard to spot. Lots of people wear them around their necks with great pride. Those chains rattle and make a noise something like this. I can earn my way to heaven by being good enough to deserve it. Now, I would hazard a guess that in Ellen's counseling practice, You see a lot of people with these chains around their neck. And a lot of times, they don't know they're there. And even more so, they're not quite sure if they really want to take them off. It's not that they don't know how. It's they don't want to. Why? Because they don't want to give up control. They don't want to give up the right to say how they impress God, their neighbors, and realistically themselves. You know, it seems like that this type of legalism is easy to spot and destroy. In fact, in the Reformation, that was one of the big things. Luther was crying out against the Catholic Church, who at this point in the Middle Ages, so this would be 12, 13, 1400 A.D., leading up to right around 1500 A.D., the church and the state were so far enmeshed with one another that it was a we'll scratch your back if you scratch ours type of relationship. And so some of the chief people in office running the civil government were sometimes people in the church. And so a big fundraising effort was going on. They were buying 
and selling salvation. Buying and selling of indulgences. These were, well, your relatives are in purgatory now, and we've got a new road to pave, but if you give a whole lot of money to the church, you know what? We'll say a special blessing, do a special rite, and we can promise you that your friend will no longer be in purgatory, but instead they'll go to heaven. See, the church was buying and selling salvation, telling people that they could earn it through sacrifice and hard work. How did Luther, how did Calvin, how did the martyrs of the church respond to that? Well, this is what they said. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says. It's by faith alone that we're made acceptable to God. Paul says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it Grace and faith are a gift from God. I don't think that there's many of us in this room that are really tempted by these chains around our neck. There may be some. And so if you're here this morning and you're still thinking that your attendance at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church or whatever church you happen to find yourself in, or the amount of money that you give, or the amount of benevolence effort that you exert, If you think these things are impressing a holy and righteous God who sees your heart and all the motivations inside of it, watch out. It can't. It won't. It doesn't. We need Jesus alone to be our righteousness because Jesus is the only one that could keep the law with the right and pure intentions required by God. There's two other types of chains, though. And these I want to address specifically to us this morning because I, I fear that these may be chains right now that you have loaded up on and may not even be aware of it. What's the second one? The law puts chains around our shoulders. There's a second type of chain that I think a lot of Christians carry around. Here's the, what it says. I think I'm a Christian, And I believe that I'm saved by grace, but I have to prove it by good works. I think I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure I'm saved by grace. I'm pretty sure that I'll go to heaven when I die. But just to be sure, I better really work hard. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, now, wait a second, David. There are a lot of verses in Scripture that support that point of view. I'll read you a couple of them. Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. What about Philippians chapter 2, verse 12? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What about Hebrews chapter 10? If we deliberately go on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, I know they're there. I know that they can loom heavily. We can read that and say, see, there it is. I have to really try hard. But here's the thing. The Bible does not contradict itself. And if the gospel is about free grace achieved for us by Jesus, then we have to figure out how these verses don't drown out the gospel. 
so concerned are Christians to prove um, that they were saved, that their salvation is real and genuine, that they become utterly consumed with fear and self-determination. What did the Apostle John record for us in 1 John 4? Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So there is, in fact, no way to reconcile a fearful, self-deterministic motivation of doing better and proving to God that you're his. Nothing undermines the gospel more than what we're talking about right here. Now, you'll hear it called a lot of things that sound very Christian and very right. You'll call it Christian duty, mortification of the flesh, holiness of life the lordship of Christ, and so on and so on and so on. But behind these nice words are chains that bind and eventually pervert the Christian faith into a deadly form of legalism. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in good works. The Bible teaches that very thing. We don't get to take one part of Scripture and say it doesn't count anymore. I believe that Christians sometimes just have to grit their teeth and do the right thing, even though they don't feel like it. And I also believe that uh, a healthy dose of fear never hurt anyone. What did Proverbs say? In Proverbs 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. My problem is this. These truths end up taking a central role with many Christians, so much so that they actually take us away from our only source and hope of spiritual power. Rather than looking at conscious reliance on Christ for everything, we, we impose on ourselves a sense of fear and dread and hard work, and these things become the driving force of our daily lives. You know what we do? We end up reducing God to a strict, pedantic judge as if he's sitting there in heaven waiting for Sally to mess up again. You know what he might do then? He might take us and squash us like bugs and send us to hell. Well, look, friends, this is not a picture at all about who God is. And as we think about our passage in Nehemiah, as it goes on in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, we'll see a very different picture. It's a terrible way to think about God. It's a terrible way to live life. But it's a picture that a lot of Christians hold dear to their hearts. And, you know, I did too. I still do. And from time to time, I see this reality rearing its head again. As I grit my teeth and say, oh no, I'm a minister. They can't see me screw up. Oh no, I'm a minister. God can't see me screw up. What if he won't bless my sermon? What if he won't bless my family? See, I'm, I understand because I wrestle with these things all the time. There's a third type of legalism that we need to be aware of. And it's this. The law puts chains tangled around our feet. Now, 
This is a really hard one because it's the most subtle one. You've heard these chains rattle, friends, and they sound like this. I am such a committed Christian that I'm going to figure out precisely what Jesus wants me to do and wants you to do, and we're going to do it for him. I'm going to figure out precisely what Jesus wants you and me to do, and we're going to do it for him. Now, why is this a problem? Well, this book, this Bible that we believe to be the Word of God, containing all that we need for life and godliness in Christ, this is not an encyclopedia, nor is it a phone book. There are areas where Scripture doesn't address every situation. But here's the problem. What we do is we become so caught up with what the right application of Scripture is that we begin to lose sight of where God's Word ends and our particular applications begin. Let me say that again. We get so caught up with trying to do what Scripture says that we move beyond what it says into application and then lose sight of where does God's Word end and our application begin. Now, we begin to hold up our application as God's new standard of holiness, don't we? We'll take our personal convictions, our personal applications, our personal understanding of what the scriptures say, and we will hold these things up and say, Christians must live like this. And you know what you begin to do? You hold yourself hostage to that list. You hold your family hostage to that list. Your spouse, your kids, your grandkids your neighbors, the people sitting next to you in church right now, you hold everybody hostage, not to the word of God, but to how you personally apply the word of God. And when you do that, you're actually wrapping chains around your feet and the feet of those that you love. Let me give you an example. The Catholic Church taught that you were not forgiven unless you repented of your sin. Well, of course, the Bible teaches that we should repent. But the, but the church taught that repentance was a condition of forgiveness. But wait, the only condition of our forgiveness is Christ alone. As soon as you say that it's all by grace, comma, but... Whatever the blank gets filled in with, whether it's you have to try harder... Repent more, mean it more, believe it more. It is no longer grace. It's all about what you are doing to make the formula work. Look, Jesus himself had strong words for the Pharisees about this very type of action. Take your Bible with me and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 42. Jesus is saying, but woe to you Pharisees, 
For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you! For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Well, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus, not missing an opportunity to be an equal opportunity kind of guy, in verse 46 says, Woe to you lawyers also. Listen, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. See, friends, when you begin to make application from the Bible the new norm, you're doing just what the lawyers did here, don't we? You begin to hold up standards that cannot be kept, let alone by you, not to mention anyone else you might come in contact with. See, the thing that crushed the people when they heard the law of God read was that they could never fulfill the law's demands. When they understood, verse 8 says, when the law was read, the people understood the reading. They wept. So if we're asking ourselves diagnostic questions, this is the one that I would pose to you because it's been the one that's been um, doing business on me this week. And that is... The question is not, are we legalists? The question is, which legalist am I today? The question is not, are we legalists? The question is, which one am I today? And it may be more than one. Vaclav Havel, the former president of the Czech Republic, was imprisoned for resisting the communists in the 1970s and 80s. When he was released and elected president, Havel surprised many by being noticeably forgiving towards his political enemies. Some criticized him for this stance and misinterpreted it as weakness. But Havel reminded the Czech people that the line between good and evil did not run clearly between them and us, but through each person. The line between good and evil did not run clearly between them and us, but through each person. Friends, even as Christians, we still have a sin nature. And as such, we're going to always fight the temptation to go back to that which ensnared us. The only hope for us is to not boast in our own record or righteousness, but in Jesus' finished work. Well, how do we do that? It's actually built in for us in this passage. You see, when we think about the delight of done... Hebrew poetry had a unique literary device built into it. Do you remember when you were young, playing the game, one of these things is not like the other? One of these things just doesn't belong? Well, actually, um, not quite in the same way, but in Hebrew poetry and in Hebrew literature, they actually built the same type of device in so that people could see what the point of the passage was. It was was using chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, a chiasm, where you would have parallelism and then there'd be one passage that would stick out like a sore thumb. You want to see it? Look at verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people clearly understood the reading. Now, look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because what? They had understood the words that were declared to them. Do you see the parallelism? 
Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, look at verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Do you see it? Well, what's the one verse left? Verse 10. Look. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Look, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That was the point of this passage. That was the point of this time as they were hearing God's law. They couldn't keep it. I put a quote in your bulletin this morning by Kevin DeYoung where he says, the secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. Why was the joy of the Lord their strength? Why? They were getting ready to celebrate the new year. In the new year, the first day of the new year was a day holy and set apart. It was a day that they were going to prepare themselves for the Feast of Booths. B-O-O-T-H-S, booths, in which they were going to go out in the wilderness, build tents, and camp out, and remember how God had provided for them in the wilderness. It was all leading up to the Day of Atonement, in which they would go before the temple, the blood of the Lamb would be sprinkled on the altar, and the people would be cleansed temporarily for another year. And so they were saying, no, there will be time for weeping. There will be time for repenting. There will be time for sorrow, but not today. Not today. Today, we're going to hear the law, and we're going to hear how God at every turn has provided mercifully, sacrificially, and bountifully for his people. What were they supposed to do during this time of covenant renewal? They were supposed to recall the past. God rescued his people from slavery and sin in Egypt. He led them out to the promised land, being their provision in the wilderness and their abundance in spite of their ongoing wickedness. They were to rest in God's present faithfulness. God had made a way to pass over their sin and remember it no more. And because of that, they were supposed to celebrate. And they were also supposed to rejoice In God's future faithfulness. Wilderness pilgrimage existed only for a season. God's people believed that a coming Messiah, a coming liberator, would come, end their wilderness wanderings, vanquish their enemies, and bring them to their full and final inheritance. Henry Nouwen was a Dutch priest, professor, and author. And he found in his studies, a living, breathing example of surrendering control and looking outside of yourself to rest and find joy. He saw it while he was in Germany in a trapeze troupe from South Africa. And as he watched them perform their act, he realized the real star of the show is not the person in the air, but the catcher. As Nowen thought about his life with God, he said, and I quote, I can only fly freely when I know there is a catcher to catch me. He went on to say this. If we're to take risks to be free in the air, in life, we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. 
And we're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. Trust the catcher. Well, so what do we do with this this morning? When the chains of legalism come rattling, what do we do? If you're here this morning and you're convinced that all you need to do with your life is minimize your bad parts and maximize your good parts to please God, do you see that this is a chain around your neck? When we're so uncertain as to whether God really loves us and those chains around our shoulders come crashing in, what do we do? Do we push harder? Pray harder? Try to prove to God that we really are his? What about when the chains get tangled up around our feet? When people try and make the Bible say more than it does, what do we do? Or are you the one that's trying to make the Bible say more than it does? What should you do? Well, in John's gospel, there's a beautiful place where Jesus actually crashes the party of the Feast of Booths. And he comes in and he stands up on the last day, the holiest of days, and he declares who he is. Our hope to combat the legalism that would ensnare us is to boast in the only gospel that can free us. A gospel of scandalous, radical, free grace. Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Booths. Jesus came and made his camp in our wilderness, exiled from his home because of our sin. Jesus was the faithful one who kept God's law and fulfilled God's covenant promises. Jesus is the one who loves you right now. Warts, wrinkles, and all. And not some far off better version of you just that he's just waiting for you to become. I love the hymns of John Newton. Listen to the last verse of glorious things of the earth spoken. He said, Savior, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the world's best pleasure. All that's boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. Friends. Eat, drink, send portions to those who have not, and make great rejoicing. Because we have been freed by what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Let us pray. And so, O Father, help us to avoid two ditches. On the one hand, help us to avoid making sin a small, no, never mind thing. Sin is a big deal. For our sin, Jesus was killed. You take sin seriously. You take holiness seriously. But, O Father, help us to not miss the other extreme. which is not making a big enough deal about Jesus. His grace sustains us. His spirit fills us. 
His blood covers us. And in His righteousness, we are free to trust the catcher. To trust that there is one here who will not let us fall. Who will not let us collapse. Who will sustain us until that great day comes when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I pray for my friends that that grace would enliven them, enrapture them, and embolden them this week. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.